0: Hey everyone, welcome to episode six of the Full Stack Radio podcast where we talk to people in the software industry about everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and systems administration. I'm Adam as always and I'm here today with Chris Fidow of Userscape. How's it going, dude? Hey, how's it going? I'm awesome. good. Uh, yeah, so do you mind just giving us a brief introduction and telling us like who you are and what you do and what keeps you busy? Sure. Uh, I'm Chris Fidau,
1: like you said. I work in primarily PHP web development. So I work at Userscape, where we work on help desk applications. And we use a lot of Laravel, because uh, Taylor Atwell, um, used to work here, and is now work full-time in Laravel. Um, and my side projects are probably more what we're going to talk about here. I do a lot of DevOps stuff on the side. So I have the Service for Hackers newsletter, and I've... S- sort of recently written the, um, service for
0: hackers book to kind of go along with it. Awesome. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about mostly was, uh, the servers for hackers stuff and some of the sysadmin stuff, cause that's not my area of expertise at all. So hopefully we can talk about some, uh, kind of more entry level stuff or questions that a lot of people that are building their own things need to host their own applications might be interested in knowing. So, Uh, Do you mind telling us a little bit more about uh, Service for Hackers and kind of where the idea came from, how long you've been doing it and stuff like that?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, Service for Hackers came about because I am that person who doesn't know enough about it and wanted to know more. And actually it's, it's bitten me a few times with some like deployments in the past where something's broken and I have no idea what's going on. Like I have this vague idea of or even like less than vague or better than vague idea of like how like the server is interacting with PHP and doing all this stuff but like there's always some like hiccup where you just don't really get why like something's not talking to my SQL and all the different ways like a network can be messed up so that a server can't talk to another server or you know whatever is the case that whatever is that thing that makes you take three to six hours just figuring out some stupid little thing where you could have done it in five minutes and been on your way. Um, so Service for Hackers kind of grew out of that. So I started just kind of digging into virtual machines and started using that for development. Um, even before Vagrant was around, I was I think like right before Vagrant was a thing, I started like using um, VirtualBox and VMware mostly, just making the servers and developing on them and figuring out how they worked. Uh, So Service for Hackers kind of grew out of my learning because I learned all this stuff. I realized there's kind of like this audience of people who just need to know the basics. Like we all in the PHP world get to get away without knowing how to set up a server because you install Apache and mod PHP and everything just kind of works. Or the hosting just comes with PHP. You don't have to think about it. Uh, So when you run into like a more complex application, all of a sudden that information... You know, you need that, and you as a PHP developer, um, and I I single out PHP developers because everything kind of just works in PHP, Uh, whereas in Ruby and Python and other stuff, you might need a little more knowledge to get started on the server. Um, So, you know, I had, like, zero knowledge, and I learned stuff, and then I made servers for hackers so other people could learn stuff too to kind of, like, fill that niche of people who needed to know the basics as it pertains to web development.
0: It's interesting that you bring up like the fact that PHP like just runs everywhere and is so like ubiquitous because that's probably been one of the biggest reasons that I've stuck with PHP because it's kind of let me just worry about like the code I'm writing and the stuff that I'm building instead of like the infrastructure that it's going to run on and yeah. I've always thought of that as an advantage but like the way you're talking about it now kind of makes me feel like I'm letting that, like, handicap me from, like, getting more experience. Like, you know, if I wanted to build, like, a web service in Go or something, I wouldn't have, like, the first idea how to serve it. And, yeah, yeah, so trying to learn more about how all that stuff works, I think, can be really beneficial for especially PHP developers who historically just don't have to care at all. Right, right. Like, everything just runs everywhere. Every host that you set up just works. And, you know, anytime you run into some, like, problem, you are just screwed because you have no idea <laughs> what yeah, you were absolutely. supposed to do. It's just, like, restart Apache or restart Nginx or restart <laughs> the database server and just, like, hope everything is going to work. Um, do you have any, like, advice for people in that position that wouldn't even know how to get started serving, you know, another language on a web server? Like, what are some... Things everyone should know about being able to set up a, an environment for serving an application on the web? Um, so, I first figured out
1: that stuff actually when I started playing with Node.js, which, in terms of hosting and setting up a service, is similar to Go uh, in that the language is a little lower level. It kind of like, like it talks HTTP directly. But then, if you're building something without using like a framework, you have to figure out that you're getting like um, you know and it's asynchronous, so you're getting like chunked data, and then you're com- that data gets combined at the end of a request, and you kind of like get this lower level of knowledge of what's going on, even though JavaScript's kind of a high-ish level language. Um, and node kind of opened my eyes to a few things because all of a sudden I had this process running and it's a single process and even the word process is a thing I have to learn because starting a node app is starting like this single process that doesn't thread and do this other stuff that PHP can do but you never see it or have to deal with it Um, you know more or less Um, so Learning another language is really good for that because it forces you to get to the position where you have to figure out, you know, all right, I I'm coding this thing and now it's not in development anymore. I want to put it up on a real server. What, what do I do if, um, you know, how do I make it run if it does, if it breaks or stops and that kind of thing. So I guess the basics of knowing how to, uh, serve an application PHP or otherwise is knowing, like, the basic components, right? So, like, your web server, like Apache or Nginx. Um, An application gateway is this thing that sits between your web application and your code, and that's kind of invisible in PHP, especially when you use it with Apache and mod PHP 5, because there isn't really a gateway there. But PHP FPM is an application gateway. That's, like, the thing that Nginx talks to or Apache talks to, and it, in turn, talks to your PHP application. So you have, like your web server, your gateway, the code, and figuring out how that stuff talks to each other, um, especially if you get into something like a multi-server environment where even PHP FPM can be in a separate server from Nginx or Apache, which is not uh, necessarily typical, but it can be. So, I mean, the basics are just knowing like how your code gets requests from a web server, from like someone's computer sending a web request to someone's...
0: You know, web application and that web application in
1: turn actually giving a response back to you. I
0: guess maybe a good thing that we could do is just kind of start at like the first decision you would have to make if you were trying to set up an environment. And maybe we can walk through some of the uh, things to consider there. Like I, a couple of people had asked on Twitter some questions that we we're going to go over a few of them. but. One of them was basically just like you know how do you decide what operating system that your server should run? You know what I mean? Like Ubuntu or some Debian flavor or CentOS or you know how would you decide what your starting point would be?
1: Yeah, and that's a good question. Like I think your server distribution will guide a lot of what and how you learn the rest of the stuff. But which one you pick is up to you, and they all can kind of they can all get you there. Um your situation is you know kind of the driver of of what you need so if you work in a company and you're learning this stuff to you know be in kind of an enterprisey type thing, you might f- use red Hat or CentOS o s if you don't have like a license for a red hat enterprise and those distributions um you know I'm kind of painting a broad brush, but like red Hat especially releases software at a lower rate so you don't always get the most up to date software, but you do get, you know, good security, good updates. Um, So you might use Red Hat, like if your work uses Red Hat or CentOS, or you might use it because you prefer the more enhanced security stuff that comes out of the box. But you also have more overhead of learning um, some of the extra stuff. And because of its enterprise nature, the the documentation all that stuff is all out there, but it's not like the most popular distribution for like um, open source stuff. So then, you know, if you're more like me, where all this stuff is kind of on the side, you're not in like an enterprisey type place, you know, you don't have your own data center where you just spin up your own servers and stuff. You just have like DigitalOcean and Linode. I like Ubuntu because everything on it just kind of like just just works in air quotes. There's packages and stuff. There's easy, easy ways to get the most up-to-date software, which isn't always great, but it is sort of is like you get the most up-to-date, you can get the most latest stable, including bug fixes, or you can jump way ahead and get the development version of stuff. And that's usually readily available on uh, a distribution like Ubuntu. And some people prefer Debian and Ubuntu is based on Debian and Debian is like the slightly more conservative Ubuntu. And, you know, if you like that better, it's supposedly later weight, but it's really close to Ubuntu because it has the same package managers and that kind of thing. So I think the differences are pretty minor. Um, I myself haven't used it purely out of, I mean, laziness of not wanting to learn it of different quirks, but there's no reason not to use it. So it's kind of like your starting point is figuring out what server you want to use, but you know, I won't tell you definitely use A or B.
0: It's kind of like, what's your situation? Yeah. I mean, like for me, I've always just used Ubuntu because I didn't know why not to, or, but I also, I also couldn't give you a good reason why I was other than that just seems to be the most ubiquitous one. Like it seems like everyone in my position is using it sort of thing. Yep. Right. It's, it's just
1: like PHP. It's highly Googleable and some of your interests might be crap and some might be really good. Also like PHP. So, you know, it's, you know, double-edged sword there, but it's so popular and so used, um, like even things like h h v m had an Ubuntu release before they had other servers, so you know the it's just good for side project um it's actually good for everything it's good for production I use it in production it's good for learning, i think because you can get a lot of packages that sort of just work together and then take your time figuring out how that all interacts with each other and you know versus something like um what arc Linux, which is just like no configuration for you, it'll install a package, but you have to configure everything. And some people love that because they actually know what's going on or, you know, are have the time to read the documentation and all that stuff. And some people don't. Um, you know, like me, I like I like my Apple stuff. I like my just works
0: hardware and software. I guess the next decision would be like, do you use Nginx or do you use Apache? And I think I think these days, like pretty much everyone will say that Nginx is superior to Apache, but other than like vague, you know, reports of it being faster, I couldn't really give someone like a good explanation as to why that's the case. Do you know more about that? A little bit. Um, so, like, Nginx runs off of f-
1: like kind of like Node.js, it's a single process. It's not technically single. You can actually make it, um, typically, people run as many processes of Nginx as many cores in their CPU they have, so that their CPU cores each have their own single Nginx process and can handle that separately. So, but you can think of it as just like Node.js, like a single process, evented, asynchronous thing. So there's just one process sucking in new requests and, um, you know, handling them when it has time to handle a request. So, like, it might send off a network request to somewhere. And while it's waiting for that to get back in the milliseconds it takes, it's handling a next request and that kind of thing. And Nginx was built to solve this like 10 K concurrency thing that the authors talk about Um, being able to handle 10,000 concurrent requests at once. So it was, it's geared towards this performance use case and uh I think a result of that is that it was it first came out, it was a lot simpler. Uh configuration wasn't really weird. There wasn't like all these modules and all this kind of stuff going on. I think technically you could argue that you lose out on some features that like Apache might have, but I've yet to ever actually run across um something that Nginx couldn't do that Apache could do that I really needed. So Apache on the other hand is for the most part, a process model. So traditionally, every time a request comes into Apache, it spawns a new process, and that's kind of a heavy thing for a server to do. So you get this one-to-one thing. We have a one request per uh, process. But then there's some other things that you can enable to do some threading also. So a process can handle multiple requests because it threads and makes a little mini process, which is kind of what I'll call a thread and that can handle a lot of requests, a lot more requests. So you get more concurrency out of that in Apache. So, so Apache versus Nginx, a lot of that is about like the process model. I like Nginx more so because it's easy to use um, and I like the idea of it handling a lot of requests without really choking. Like Apache can use more memory because like for instance, traditionally if you use PHP with Apache, um mod PHP it's loading in PHP on every web request, even if that's a request for like a CSS file. Um, so you get this like 8 to 16 megabytes of stuff loaded in on the process. Um, and that process might spread uh, spawn threads and those threads don't have that overhead, which is cool. But um, you know nginx handles that kind of thing by not integrating you know other languages. It just kind of passes a request off to something else and lets that handle it. When that, something else can be in the same server or a different server. So, it's a little more scaly that way. Um, Now, Apache can do the same thing also. So, like, I would again go by, you know, does your company use Apache? Do you need to figure out how Apache works because you're going to work with it on a day to day basis? Uh, I use Nginx for everything because the configuration is kind of easy. It makes sense. um, And it has some kind of cool features like like web caching and its load
0: balancer is really easy to use and that kind of thing. Cool. You kind of mentioned like DigitalOcean and Linode. How do you see uh, maintaining like your own VPS stacking up against services like Heroku or Fort Rabbit or any of these other like platform as a service or even considering like, uh, you know, like Forge? I think um, people need to learn this as part of web development.
1: And I have um, kind of a bias towards doing something to learn it. You know what I mean? Like, like do do the crazy code things on your side projects because then you learn the the pitfalls and why they're good, and then you can bring that into your professional work expertise as you kind of get used to it. So things like you know PHP land that's going on, like event buses and uh, CQRS and whatever fancy you know domain driven design things going on. Same thing in the server land. Um, I like doing stuff outside of like Heroku and Forge and that stuff because it forces me to get more familiar with everything. But, you know, and and any production thing I do right now will probably be on, like, a DigitalOcean or Linode or AWS because I want to go crazy and incur too much expense doing, like, an eight-server setup for something that could be in one server and never crash because of the experience for it. But, you know, some people don't need or want that and shouldn't use that, and they should um incur you know I like heroku can get expensive and that kind of thing when you add more um dynos i think
0: does that what they call them yeah have you run php on heroku at all <sighs> once yeah it's funny cuz like they kind of started talking about that like i don't know was that earlier this year or but i still i still don't hear about anyone using it whereas in like the ruby world it's like ubiquitous like every app is hosted on heroku and
1: ruby for some reason is a pain to host
0: um, and I think it's
1: actually a similar thing where all these services popped up to host your Ruby applications, and people use that because hosting it is sort of a pain. And it's similar to Python. I see it just like as Python. But again, I have more experience in, in hosting Python stuff than Ruby. But you know, you have your code, you have an application gateway, and in Python, that can be like Fusion Passenger or uh, Unicorn, I think, or Green Unicorn. I think Unicorn's the Ruby one. And then, uh, you know, again, your web server, which just talks to that. So, you know, Ruby and Python are both, both have this extra overhead of stuff that PHP doesn't necessarily have. And that's, you know, and I think that's why things like Heroku have a higher user base of people doing Ruby and stuff like that. And I don't know, maybe like Ruby has some statistically significant amount of people who are like startups and stuff and their focus is not learn new stuff, but, you know, push it. So, you know, it could be that kind of thing, too. Uh, but I, I think it's all worth learning. And, um, you know, it'll only help you. And it's not once you get some like concepts down, everything
0: kind of starts making a lot of sense. If you were going to start a new project today, that was like a personal project that you didn't expect to ever become like, you know, the next big startup or something, maybe something that was going to have a couple thousand users at most over the next couple of years. What would your setup look like for something like that. Like, what would be your kind of go to?
1: So, are you talking about something that needs to scale, or something that is no, like, like not doesn't need to big? scale
0: crazy. Like, maybe, maybe at the end of the day, you have like, you know, two thousand to twenty five hundred people using it on like a semi regular basis.
1: I mean, you can get away with like the the twenty dollar DigitalOcean instance and have everything on it, which is what I have for ServiceForHackers dot com, the book site. Fidelper.com. Um com is actually the only thing there that's database-driven. Everything else is used with a static site generator. So I don't know if that even counts because it's just content. You know, like It's not like a web application. I think if you're small, and what I would start on is something that is semi-resilient to failure, so not necessarily full-fledged high availability, but somewhere in between. So I would put the database on one server, um, and I would either just do backups like every night or every you know 12 hours or whatever that goes to s3 or i would do like a um, a replication setup with my sql or Postgre and have two database servers then i would do a load balancer and have you know one or two web nodes under that uh just because if one fails the other one's there and people do stuff where they have more than one load balancer and then they use like a domain DNS settings to round robin between the two and so if your load balancer fails because that's actually a single point of failure you know you distrib- distribute that to two points of failure um, so you're just that less likely to actually totally fail and you might want to consider that if you um, either set up like maybe AWS DNS to send data to different locations depending on people's location in the world or something like that but I've been, I definitely would not do that off the top of my head so I mean out off the top of a off the start of a project. So um and then maybe the only other thing I'd add on top of that is like a cache server to
0: have um like session storage. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty simple setup, I guess, which is kind of what I was thinking as well. I mean I th- I think it starts to get scary when you actually have to scale because it sounds like as soon as those are the sorts of problems that you're having, like code is not an issue anymore. And all the people who wrote the code maybe don't have the skills to scale the actual application. And it's like a whole different set of skills that you need. And like, like I wouldn't know how to like shard a database across multiple servers. You know what Oh I mean? yeah. And that's like, uh, that's like the last resort of database scale. Uh, f- f-
1: something I read says that, but I forget what it was because that is a hard problem. And it's like a wonky thing is like, like you, you have to partition your data in this weird way. So like people from A to C are on one database, you know, the last name A to C or something, you're, it's like a logical partition. It's not like this thing just shards it for you and it's done.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's like scary stuff to think about. Like, like, I guess for me, like the example that I gave where I'm thinking of like, you know, a small app that has a handful, a couple thousand people using it. The fact that like I could manage something like that with like, two application servers a database server that's being backed up on a regular basis and like a load balancer that's like just distributing the load between those two servers that sounds like a nice comfortable little setup to run like the sorts of projects that i ever expect myself to end up having to manage myself you know what i mean right
1: and i think like uh an alternative to that might be so just have, like, an Ansible playbook or something set up to rebuild that server if you need to. So, like, you just pop it on one server, have, um, like, Chef or Puppet, or I, I like Ansible because Ansible makes the most sense to me, um, just ready so you can just build a new server if your server goes down or if something breaks. And, you know, you have a little downtime there in the build process, but it's easy. It's just, like, a button and everything's set up. And then maybe it takes a few more minutes to, like, get your database from a backup or something and, and start from there. Um, and maybe a little more time if you have to do some DNS stuff to switch your domain to a new server. you know so you, you have the cost of time there but like I've been running some servers for a few years and I've never had a hiccup while other people's stuff breaks you know it's all it's all up in the air. So for a project that size you might want to just do something like that like the Ansible setup and just you know be ready to make a new server. Um, but on the other hand, having just a few servers set up like that isn't necessarily ridiculous either. Uh, just a little more expensive.
0: Yeah. But I mean, i I think you could run a setup like that for like 50 bucks a month or something like,
1: yeah, yeah, you can definitely like, you can go cheap on your web servers and get a more expensive database server. Cause that's like a bu- the usual bottleneck.
0: Uh, you mentioned Ansible. I've always just like anytime I needed to provision a server, I've always done it with Bash, right? And I think like you've done things that way a lot in the past. Oh, too. Yeah. Like you maintain Vapour Bash, right? Which I've used a lot on some of my own projects. But it sounds like you're pretty excited about Ansible stuff lately. So what's kind of like drawn you there from kind of preferring to do things the Bash way and not really being super into Puppet and Chef? Like what makes Ansible different? Uh, so, bash scripts are what I did, and I made VaporBash
1: um, a series of bash scripts so that people can look at how its stuff is installed. So, like the bash script is exactly the commands you would run in your server to, to get something going. Um, VaporBash is a collection of that, and that's something I refer to and copy and paste from all the time because it just has this like library of, you know, this is how you install memcache, or this is how you install Redis, and whatever. Um, Ansible is like the ne- next logical step. Uh, because how you define your um, tasks in Ansible uh, is essentially line by line going through a bash script and saying do this, do this, do this. Except you're not telling Ansible to do this. You're telling Ansible, I want this in this state. Um, So you are telling Ansible the state you want something to be in. And Ansible does all of this overhead that you would otherwise have to code in your bash scripts to figure out the current state of the server and figure out what needs to change to get there. So the result of that is that you can set the state, essentially. You, know, you make these playbooks in Ansible, and these playbooks have tasks, and these tasks are saying the state, so it's not like do this, do this, do this. It's saying I want this like A, B, and C, this file here, this configuration here. And Ansible is like, all right, this is already set, so I don't need to do that. This is already set, I don't need to do that. This is different, so I'll change it to this. Um, you know, And everything kind of works there. And you get this beautiful code run test code test run whatever you know however you want to call it uh cycle so it's kind of like programming you get to write something out you think it'll work you run it you get an error you fix it you run it again and you can keep running over and over and over again because ansible is you know strives to be independent meaning you can keep running it over and over again and rather than like a bash script can very easily get in this state where it just keeps like appending something to a file or something and instead of overwriting the configuration it'll just keep appending or something stupid like that Ansible is declarative strives to be independent so you're telling it what, to, what you want and if you have errors you just like tweak your files and your configuration as needed and just keep rerunning it so it's just like a coding test cycle you know the tests are a little slower because Ansible is SSHing into servers and updating stuff but it's it's like a really nice way to to figure out, you know, it's like a really nice step after bash, and you get these huge benefits. and then you have this thing you can run later again and again on other servers. And so that's not necessarily um, distribution or operating system independent because in Ansible you you can have a lot of conditionals or you can just say, this is going to work for Ubuntu, you know, something like that. Um, Chef and puppet try to be, you know, this works for everything. It has like less assumptions. They're a lot more complicated in my experience. Like I've, I took some time to learn Chef and was really turned off by it. It was so hard to get anything done, like the mental leaps of, of figuring out that. And you know, plenty of people have figured that out. I just happen to have not to. I haven't had a need. And Ansible really just made immediate sense to me. So I just kind of like kept with it. An- Ansible is agentless, meaning it just SSHs into servers and like gets uh, information about it and then just does what task it needs to do. Uh, Chef and puppet, you need to install a agent on every server you want to provision, and then that kind of does the same thing, but you know plus an agent. So it's a little more overhead with that. So you know it's just that kind of thing. I think um, you might move on to Chef and puppet from Ansible perhaps. Um, you know, maybe if and I think other people just use it because their companies have used Chef and puppet, and then that's what
0: they ended up using because they had to learn it that way. but I'm I, I'm definitely a lover a lover of Ansible. It sounds like a, a logical next step above Bash. Like the benefits that you're talking about make a lot of sense to me. I know like when I've been using Bash scripts for provisioning, if I made a mistake, I had to like destroy the server and reprovision it from scratch because yeah. trying to provision an already provisioned server, there's like 99% chance that something's just like not going to work right because it's not in that like blank slate state that the provisioning script is expecting the system yeah, to absolutely. be. Yeah, absolutely. But I also found that doing stuff the Bash script way was good for the reasons that you kind of talked about. Where it forced me to sort of like understand things because I've never really liked using tools that like abstracted things away from me that I didn't already understand. Like I I don't I'm fine with people abstracting things away from me when I already know like how it works and I could still go and fix it. But when I just start at this layer and everything behind it is just magic, that makes me like uneasy a lot of time, especially when it comes to things like. Uh, you know, server provisioning and system administration, where I, I just like literally barely know anything about it at all, or at least that's how I feel. Like I don't feel confident at all in my ability to maintain like um, a server for an application that has thousands of users or whatever. So having stuff hidden from me in the setup is like a scary thought. I would rather be forced to learn the stuff, right? So it sounds like Ansible is like a a step in uh, the right direction for someone who's started in that position.
1: Yeah, I think so. Because I'm the same way with that. I I can't, it's not that I can't stand it. Like, there's definitely a time and place for having something that just works and does it for you. Um, But I like, I've had times, too many times, where like not knowing what's going on behind the scenes has really been terrible. You know, just hours of work. And and if I knew what was going on, it would have been 10 minutes.
0: Uh, So I guess maybe we can get to some of the questions that like some people had. Uh, Someone asked about Docker. How does that uh, factor into a production environment, or what would you use it for in a local environment?
1: Um, So locally, I if Max kernel was compatible with it, I would use it over um, like VirtualBox and stuff because it's not a full virtual machine. So there's no virtualization layer. There's no like mini computer that thinks it's a full computer running on your computer. It kind of shares your computer's kernel. You know, if it's not a Mac, if it's like a Linux distribution is compatible with, it shares its kernel, it jails off a section of it. And, like, if you're running CentOS and your Docker container is an Ubuntu container, it's like the container is the difference between CentOS and um, Ubuntu. It's not like a full operating system. And... It is. It's kind of easy. I don't want to call Docker easy. It's not. It's like it doesn't make sense at first for a while at all. Um, But it's it's nice because it is lightweight, and you can just like start and stop and destroy these things pretty easily. It has this really nice Git-like thing where you can build um, a container. And then later make changes based off of that. So when you rebuild a container, it just starts from like the different part. It doesn't rebuild the entire container. So at some point your container builds become really, really quick. So like if you want one that has NGINX and PHP FEM and all this stuff in it, um, and you already have that in one container, you don't have to wait for that app get install, app get update steps. It's just like it's already done. So like if your only new addition is like a change in code, um, then the update to that new Docker container is just like some files. It's not installing stuff. Um, Which is kind of like a weird thing I just said. I think I just talked about code in the server. Um, Because Docker is, the containers that you build is kind of like setting up your server and anything else that might go into it. So like code and all that kind of thing. Um, So people can use it in production for a full deployment Thing inside of this container is both your Ubuntu server, um, or you know whatever your server is, and it is only running a f- one or maybe a few processes, and those processes might be nginx and PHP-FPM. Another one might be your Redis or your database or whatever. And when you push updates to your code, you might rebuild the entire container instead of like try to SSH into a container and add new files to one that already exists. So you kind of get this container, and this container is everything. It's it's the server. It's like some networking setup. It's um, your code, um, and then you do the huge pain in the ass process of orchestrating multiple containers. Like so, the network they talk to each other. Your Nginx and PHP FPM container can talk to your database container, or maybe your PHP FPM is a separate container from Nginx, and they have to communicate and you don't necessarily know what, like, IP address are assigned to the container, so you have to write code that automatically figures out, you know, what location things are at. And you can do, like, kind of some, and it has, like, this weird model where when you start a container, you're starting, like, a single process. So sometimes will some people will start Nginx, and then the only thing running in that container is Nginx. And then maybe it shares some files to like get to the code or whatever, because you can share directories between the host computer and the nginx container. I hope I'm not getting too complicated, <laughs> but um, you know, like, so you start a process. So some people will start like supervisor or upstart or some process monitor in the container, and then that in turn will start other processes. So then you get multiple processes running in a container, but your point of entry. Um, you're telling the container to start Supervisored, Supervisored in turn inside of the container saying start NGINX and PHP, FPM and whatever. I don't know. So it's like, it's not simpler. I don't, it's definitely not simpler. There's like all this overhead of stuff to learn and like all this configuration stuff you have to make work. So stuff plays together well. And then there's like some weird hurdles, like you're docker container might bind to your server's port 80 so that nothing else can because port 80 is you know it's only one port 80 on a public you know network or whatever to get to a server so all of a sudden if you want to run multiple applications it's a little weird you have to like do you have to like put a load balancer in front you don't even need the load balancer but you just want it to like split requests to different other containers So, I mean, it gets a little wonky, but it is really nice for some stuff. Like, I love it in the development. I did uh, a lot of Docker stuff when I was writing the Servers for Hackers book, just so I could start one up really quick and, like, get a proxy load balancer working and have some Nginx containers and just get them communicating with each other. And that was kind of nice for
0: development and just playing around. Cool. Um, Another question, which we kind of talked about a little bit, but um, what are some essential server things that every web developer should know? This is going to be a similar answer to what we talked about. I think in
1: the beginning, and that's a the components that go into hosting a web application, any web application, and then figuring out how to like install and make them communicate to each other within whatever operating system you use, whatever distribution of Linux you use, or whatever. So, like the web server, um, web servers now almost all talk to application gateways, excluding PHP with. Apache, which is weird, and then you have your application code. So you like you need those three components just to have a web application um, run in production essentially. And you know technically, you can run stuff like node or go or like web frameworks that will also serve static content. Um, and you can use that. but of course, you know everything says these web servers that come as the development server, are the development server and not the production server because they're really inefficient. Um, so you always in production put like a real web server in front of your application. So you know you have a web server. If you're in Python, you have to figure out what your you know how to host based off of that. So if you're using Nginx, maybe you use like a web application gateway. Um, what uWSGI and figure out how to communicate with that with Nginx and then how that talks to your Python like Flask or Django application or whatever. Same thing with Ruby, um, and again, PHP is easy because you kind of just install sudo apt-get install nginx, sudo apt-get install PHP FPM, and it just kind of works. Whereas other applications, you do a little more work. But um, those those kind of three components and how they play together are really important to know just to do any web development.
0: Is there any um, mistakes you see people make really often, or little things that they could do to improve their setups?
1: Um, it's, there's probably not enough security knowledge out there. I know I definitely lack it a lot. So in addition to what I just said, if you're doing like production-y type stuff, there's a lot of simple stuff you can do, like install, fail-to-ban, which by default, on Ubuntu at least, will read your SSH logs and block people who try to log in too many times unsuccessfully. Um, and then there's kind of more complicated stuff like playing with your firewall, which, while a little more complex, is definitely important to know. Um, but, you know, the concepts behind that, because even learning how to set up your firewall has this overhead, you know, or I should say this base of knowledge you need about your networks because they, they work based on blocking inbound traffic and outbound traffic on your various networks. Um, so you kind of have to know that your server has various networks Um, and like how to figure out what they are and why they're named like low for loopback and f1 f0 and all the other weird names they can have and what they mean um so like so in addition to just like the three uh and you know web server application gateway your code there's like also how to make other servers communicate with each other over a network and like how to do that securely and God, set up users and SSH access and all the good fun stuff. Yeah, there's, there's like kind of a lot of little stuff.
0: Uh, is there any books or resources you would recommend for people who want to learn more about this sort of thing? Um, so, yes, my
1: own. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, so I saw
1: a huge gap in knowledge of all those small little basic things, and that's kind of what I'm trying to fill because that was the hardest thing to learn, like all these little details that every blog skips over because it's kind of like... You should know this much already, and here's the next step. And they just show the next step. Um, PHP has this one really good book, Scaling PHP Applications. Um, Steve Corona, who was at TwitPic, wrote it, and he had a lot of good experience scaling PHP applications, and that ends up being scaling your infrastructure that your PHP is on. It's not like the stuff in PHP code to do. And that book has a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of really great information in it, and it's and it is definitely scale. Like it talks about setting up your own little DNS services uh, with yeah. DNS masks so that there's no extra lookup time of DNS going off server for servers and that kind of thing. So you know, it has like small optimizations like that and it has you know ways to scale your database uh, and automatic failover and you know uh, configurations for her proxy and her proxy with SSL certificates for load balancing uh, when you're using SSL. Um, so it has a lot of great information. Um, if you're looking for some more advanced stuff, James Turnbull re- re- writes or wrote uh, a few books, like the Docker book and the Logstash book, and like some more general DevOps books. Um, he's actually written a lot, and they're all pretty very good. So like they they're, they're specific topics, but he does a
0: really good job of each one. So uh where can people sign up for the servers for hackers newsletter? Where can they get the ebook and what's the best place to contact you if people want to talk more about this stuff?
1: Cool. Um so serversforhackers.com is the site for the newsletter. So you'll get all the past editions if you look there and you can sign up for it. Um and I have some articles which like are not editions but are also just kind of like blog articles on that site. Um, you can go to book.serversforhackers.com for stuff on the book, which is, you know, marketing plus links to buy it. Um, so I don't know, it's not that exciting, but you can sign up and get a preview of it. And that also signs you up for a few emails, not too many that just have like some information about Nginx and load balancing and just stuff Nginx can do. And what else? I mean, that's really the, bit, the gist of it. I have my um, Fideliper.com blog, but that's not really server-y stuff anymore because I've just moved all that to Service for Hackers. And if you want to reach me, it's you know Twitter is Fideliper. That's a really good way because I'm just on TweetDeck all day. And then that username at Gmail. I get a bunch of questions through Gmail. They're all usually pretty good. Some are kind of tough um, because some people just have this really... don't have enough knowledge and the questions they're asking is like... you can you can tell that they have this whole basis of knowledge to learn still. So those questions are harder to answer and take a lot of time. So <laughs> I may or may not get back to you quickly on that kind of question, but <laughs> it's, it's, you know, I'll be around. I usually don't ignore emails.
0: Awesome, man. Well, it's been great having you on. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about or anything else you want to plug before we go?
1: Uh, cool, thanks. Um, no, everything's cool. Um, I suggest you all use Forge because I think Forge is a good uh, for PHP applications. It's a good medium, like you were talking about, of a server that you can do anything to because it's your server and you have access to it. Um, and it comes pre-configured with a lot of good PHP stuff: um, Postgre, MySQL, Nginx, PHP FPM, um, and a dashboard that makes some of the annoying stuff easy. So, you know, setting up
0: SSL certificates and multiple applications and all that. Cool. Well, show notes for this episode are going to be found at fullstackradio.com/episodes/six. If you have any feedback, let me know on Twitter. And if you could uh, rate and review us on iTunes, that would be awesome too. Thanks, guys. See you next time.